Luke chapter number 10. I have been chomping at the bit for about two weeks or more uh, to begin this series from Luke chapter 10. I, I, I entitled the series, A Heavenly Love. And uh, we're going to be looking at a very familiar story of the Good Samaritan. But I want to I dig down several layers rather than just remain on the surface here. Luke chapter number 10, we're going to begin reading in verse number 30, and we'll actually look at predominantly prior to that. But let's just get the familiar story here. Luke 10, verse number 30, the Bible says, And Jesus answering... He's answering a lawyer, uh, a, a man that, that understood the law, said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of all his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by the other side. But a certain Samaritan as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion on him, and went to him, and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And on the morrow, when he had departed, he took out two pence, and gave them to the host, and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. Which now of these three, thinkest thou, was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? And he said, He that showed mercy on him, then said Jesus unto him, Go and do likewise. The dramatic tale of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10 is one of the most beloved and interesting parables of the Lord Jesus Christ's teaching. I believe it is also... Uh, well known for its teachings on lavish and sacrificial type of kindness. To call someone a good Samaritan was a very, it's a, it's a compliment to them. Uh, we are uh, going to be partnering with what's called Samaritan's Purse and uh, with our you know, Christmas outreach boxes. And so it's a good thing to be called a Good Samaritan. But our familiarity with this parable, I believe, can also cause us to think we know the story better than we really do. Lots of people assume that they understand exactly what this story is about and what it is trying to convey, when in fact, often what we think it's about are really just the byproducts of what the story is really about. The lesson of the Good Samaritan is not merely an exhortation to help those in need. Certainly that is there in the text. It's far too simplistic on your part and my part to think that Jesus' main point was simply to show kindness to a stranger. Instead, this story is he told this story to illustrate how far you and I fall short of what God's law actually demands for each and every one of us. He explains why our good works and why our religious acts will never gain merit with God, will never gain favor and love with Him. He shows that what the law really demands of us 
and thereby he systematically deflates the hopes of those that would claim to be super religious, those that would claim that they keep the law, those that claim that they are, can I just put it as plain as, plain as day, better than others, people that would maybe even look in a religious setting like we're in now and think that somehow we are better than someone else because there are actions that we do or maybe actions that we don't do, something that we withhold from our lives. It kind of deflates our hopes of gaining merit and favor and love with God. And it, it also it talks to those that are obsessive over particular things in the law. Okay? And uh, where we will kind of we'll take a fine-tooth comb to certain areas and then we have glaring um, problems in other areas. Uh, also, this teaching um, addresses those that would find, you know, that would try to find their way around truly important things in Scripture. So basically, this the, the story is to, to help us to understand that, that that you and I, oftentimes what we do is we look on a horizontal plane to find our merit. Oftentimes we will look at those that are around us and we will deem ourselves as spiritual over someone else rather than a rather than a vertical fashion. And when you and I find a vertical righteousness, then you, what you will find is then there are certain horizontal ramifications. And that's what we find here in this story. And so the real point of the parable becomes clear when you and I pay attention to the immediate context that is found in Luke 10. And what you find in Luke 10 is there are some, uh, there's some tricky questions that are being asked. During Jesus' ministry in Galilee, which is uh, where he would have grown up, uh, he met with relentless opposition from religious leaders, from those that, uh, that, that, that they, they, were, they were opposing what he was teaching, okay? And uh, whether they were the leaders themselves or their followers. In Luke 10, Jesus, he delivers a, uh, a word of condemnation to three specific towns that, um, that, 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 had a great, that he spent a great deal of time uh, during his early ministry. Uh, Charizan and Bethsaida, and most significantly would have been Capernaum. That's where most of his disciples would have come from. Look at verse 13 of Luke 10. Woe unto thee, Chorazin, Luke 10. We're going to jump all over this morning, but, uh, but earlier in the text. Woe unto him that is at Bethsaida, for if the mighty works had been done in Tyre and Sidon, which have been done in you, they had a great while ago repented, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And thou, Capernaum, which art exalted to heaven, shalt be thrust down to hell. He that heareth you heareth me, and he that despiseth you despiseth me, and he that despiseth me despiseth him that sent me. And so Jesus is teaching here. His, his words of condemnation would have simply just stirred up the hostility that was already present towards him. Kind of like, you know, you've heard the phrase, kind of like stirring up a, you know, a, a, you know, a, a, a rattlesnake's nest or something like that. That's, as Jesus is speaking and he's 
condemning these three other cities, much of where he had already been doing his ministry, um, this, this prophetic type of doom and gloom towards these cities would have, would have angered those that were already opposed to him. And so it is at that point, after he is given this discourse of judgment, that a legal expert steps forward, he asks Jesus a question about eternal life, and he's, he's attempting to trap Jesus. He's attempting to embarrass him. And uh, I pray that you and I would never try to take the knowledge that we have, hear me, and try to trap and embarrass people with that. Okay, when you and I have the truth, you and I do not need to use cunning and crafty ways to uh, try to to try to manipulate people. And so Luke records the exchange. Look at verse 25. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him. Okay, now you and I would not know that he was tempting Jesus or that he was crafty with the question if we did not see that in Scripture. But and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Okay, now Scripture, it makes a point of noting this, this man's insincerity. Okay, because what should I do to inherit eternal life? That's a good question, isn't it? But Luke lets us in here, and we understand that this was to tempt Christ. This was to trap Christ. This was to ultimately try to embarrass him. This wasn't an honest question from a seeker. Okay? It was a test, all right? It was trying to confound Jesus by posing a moral dilemma. Or by ultimately when he talks about what it means to be a neighbor, it's this it's this paradox that would have been in the world in which Jesus was teaching and, you know, uh, preaching in his life, in, 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 in the world, okay? And so this lawyer clearly believed that Jesus had no clear answer, okay? And so this was just the first in a series of questions that the lawyer planned to ask. He wanted to embarrass Jesus, to impress the crowd with his own legal superior skills, so to speak, and down to the kind of theological fine points, Okay? And so despite the lawyer's evil motive, the first question he raised, it's a fine question. All right? And it's, a, it's, it's the fact and the greatest question ever asked or answered, and it was frequently on the minds of those that Jesus would have ministered to. In John 3, you would find that Nicodemus, he comes at, uh, comes at night, and what does he ask Jesus? How do I inherit, how do I inherit eternal life? And so it's a, it's a good question. It's a question that uh, Jesus is often asked. In Matthew 19, the rich young ruler asks the same question. Well, what do I do to inherit eternal life? The same question was posed frequently to Jesus and appears several places in the gospel. So look at verse number 26. Here's Jesus' response to that question. He said unto him, what? So he answers the question by asking a question. What? is written in the law. And notice his next three words there. How readest thou? How do you interpret it? How do you 
How do you read it? It was a uh, it was a daily tradition that they were to read Deuteronomy six. Turn there real quick. Deuteronomy six. Jesus was referring to the I don't know if I'm saying this right. Kiryat Shema. Did I say that right, Andrew? No. Okay. I don't know. Look at Deuteronomy six verse four. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. And so in the, and we're going to get to it here in a moment, uh, in, in his response to Jesus, he is referencing this. When Jesus says, how do you, how do you read it? How do you how do you interpret this? And then um, the, the, the lawyer also tacked on Leviticus 19.18, which says, Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. So hear what I'm about to say. This man knew his stuff. So Jesus says, what is, you know, what's written in the law? And how do you read it? Going all the way back to what they were supposed to recite on a, on a daily basis. Okay, turn back to Luke 10. Hopefully you kind of kept a finger there. Look at verse number 27. So now this lawyer is getting ready to answer Jesus' question. And he answered and said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy strength, and with all thy mind. And then he tacks on Leviticus 19, And thy neighbor as thyself. That was a perfect summary of the law's moral demands. It's perfect. It was, it was what Jesus had said other times. It's precisely the same answer that Jesus gave to the rich young ruler that came to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said in Matthew 22, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God, this is Jesus speaking, with all thy heart, with all thy soul. See if this kind of matches what you're seeing there in verse 26. The love of the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, that thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And so in the context, Jesus himself was saying that Deuteronomy 6, that you and I are to love God with all of our hearts, it's the first great commandment. And the second great commandment is we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. He was saying, hey, you've, you've done well. Verse 40, and these two commandments hang all, this is what he's saying to the rich young ruler, hang all the law and the prophets. If you were to take the Ten Commandments, you would find one through four talks about our love for God. Five through ten are the love for neighbor. Okay, it's spelled out in different ways, but it's the love for God, all of our hearts, and then our love for neighbor. It's what it looks like. So the I'm giving you a lot of background here for a reason. So the entire moral conduct of the law is summarized in these two simple commandments. And the lawyer in Luke 10 got it exactly right. Love God with all of your heart and love your neighbor 
as yourself. Listen, if you and I did those two things, we wouldn't need any other rules, right? We wouldn't need any other laws. If we would simply just do those two things, all the other commandments, all the moral precepts in the, in the, in the Mosaic Covenant, they simply explain in detail how to keep those two. To love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and then to love your neighbor as yourself. So hopefully you're still there in Luke 10. We're going to turn a few more times, though. But look at what it says in verse number 28. And he said unto him, this is Jesus, Thou hast answered right. You nailed it. Let's give the guy a name. Joe. Joe, good job. You nailed it. And then what does Jesus say? Oh, hey, go do this and you'll live. What, did he, what was the question? How shall I have eternal life? Yeah, you nailed it. You, you, your answer is correct, buddy. Now go do it. You want eternal life? Obey the law. This is reminiscent of what Jesus' answer to the rich young ruler was. It's not gospel like you and I think. It's the law. And so if you and I didn't understand later on when Paul, and we don't take the time this morning, when Paul begins to unpackage the purpose of the law, what's the purpose of the law? It's a schoolmaster, right? It is to teach you for your need for Christ in its simplest forms of trying to understand it here this morning. It's a schoolmaster. Okay? Turn to Romans 3, please. Romans chapter 3. You following me? Kind of, sort of, maybe. I do have a point. And then we're going to spend weeks in here, so I'm not in a hurry. Look at verse number 20. Romans 3, of course, this would have been the Holy Spirit using Paul. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Can I say it's a schoolmaster? It's to teach you that, hey, you need, you need more. The law's purpose is to teach you that you need more. And so Jesus um, reply would seem at first a glance to contradict the very heart of the gospel truth. Turn to Galatians 2. Galatians 2. Man, time is flying. Galatians 2. Verse 16. Galatians 2, verse 16. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the what? You there? Works of the what? Law. But by faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. And so what is going on here? I mean, it's like, what are you doing, Jesus? I'm just trying to be real with you. Okay, I'm not trying to uh, be irreverent. But what, what are you doing? Why did Jesus preach the law to this man and not the gospel in which you and I understand death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Hmm? He hadn't died yet. Okay, that's a good answer. Why else do you think? Why do you think he's preaching that, Dave? Okay, 
Okay. Drew. Ah, you stinker. It's part of it, right? Yeah. So if you think about it, I'm just kidding. There's a great answer there. He had a hardened heart, didn't he? Why did Jesus have to die in the first place? Because of what? Our what? Our sin. How do you know that you're a sinner? Because of why, Rick? The law. Because of the law. And so let me ask you this. Don't, don't get all nervous right now. Is the law kind of part of salvation? Can the law save you? Yes or no? But what can the law do? The law shows you that you are a sinner. So I don't believe that Jesus is actually necessarily even contradicting something that you and I hold, you know, too. Jesus was simply holding a mirror of the law up to the legal expert to demonstrate how the law condemned him. If the lawyer was an honest man, if he was honest, he would have had he would have acknowledged that he didn't love God as he should. He would have been honest that he didn't he didn't love his neighbor, and we'll get to that in like weeks to come. He didn't love his neighbor like he should. This man stepped into the study of God's law, who who was who steeped in it, excuse me, should have been broken by the law's message. He should have felt deep conviction. He should have been repentive. He should have been contrite. He should have been humble. His follow-up question ought to have been something like this. I know from bitter experience that I don't love God the way that I should. I have bitter experience to know that I have not loved my neighbor as I should. How can I be redeemed? That should have been a follow-up question. But instead, what does he do? His conscience is saying, hey, you need this, you need this. But what does he do? His self-righteous, his pride, dampers that. Look at verse 29. But he, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? And that's why we get the story of the Good Samaritan. He said, who's my neighbor? He wanted to to convince the people that he was righteous, although he wasn't. He wanted to maintain the facade that he was carrying. This was the whole problem with the legalists and the Pharisees and the other self-righteous religious people that were challenging Jesus in his day. Luke 18 tells us that they trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And they viewed others, the Bible says, with contempt. So they walked around and they're like, that's how they viewed themselves. And so Jesus was using the law to be a mirror to this man that had a hardened heart. Okay, this was Christ's central criticism of the Pharisees, of the religious elite crowd. He said in Luke 16, 15, and he said to them, ye are they which justify yourselves before men. And God knoweth your hearts, for that which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So this particular legalist was desperate to make himself look good in other eyes, regardless of what God actually thought of him. Instead of asking the right questions of, of well, you know, how can I be right with God? He doesn't ask that question. 
he asks, who's my neighbor? He skipped right over the love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, body, strength. He, he skipped over that. Like, it's, okay, I got that covered. Let me try to trap him again. Let me, let me ask a secondary question here that is going to just explode in this area. Well, then who's my neighbor? You know, because I got this whole right with God thing down. Now you've got to show me who my neighbor is. And listen to me. There's a reason why he asked that question. Because in Jesus' day, the teaching of the law of Leviticus 18 that we looked at earlier, the interpretation would have been, how do you read this? The interpretation of that day would have been, well, I only have to love my neighbor as long as they're not my enemy. That's how they interpreted it. Hey, I love my neighbor, but I'm allowed to hate my neighbor. And that's why, turn to Matthew 5 real quick. Matthew 5, real quick. Man, Matthew 5. So they read Leviticus 19.18 as love your neighbor as yourself. They interpret that as, well, you can love your neighbor and you can hate your enemy. And so Jesus is preaching on the Sermon of the Mount. Pharisees, scribes, man, religious elite, they all would have been there. Okay? And he says in verse 43 of Matthew 5:43, Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor, what? And hate thine enemy. That's what you've heard. That's what the charlatans of, uh, of your day have been preaching. Well, it's okay for you to, you know, yeah, hey, you definitely need to love your neighbor, but you're allowed. There, there's an allotment. There's a side-skirting of that by saying, hey, but you're allowed to hate your neighbor. Well, guess what? If that's what you believe, that takes all of the force out of the command. Okay? If you're free to hate your enemy, then you and I are relieved from the duty of really actually loving and caring for everyone because if someone you don't like, you can say, oh, they're my enemy. Well, I don't have to... And boy, that's totally played out in the text later on in the weeks to come as he shares the parable. Under that type of interpretation, you have no legal or moral obligation to love anyone you don't really want to. Because guess what? However you're feeling on that given day, you could make up some story and you could be like, well, you know what? Man, three weeks ago, Frank, he said this. and I'm making it up. He's really kind and loving to me. Thank you. But let's just... For, for sake of, well, he, man, three weeks ago, you know, he said, you know, whatever. I don't have to love you today. And in your mind, you'd be fully justified to do that. That was the teaching of the day. And so Jesus is saying here, hey, you've heard, you've heard that you can love your enemy, but then you're, or love your neighbor, but you're allowed to hate your enemy. And at this time, I mean, Jesus, he could have totally dismissed him. He could have left him standing right there in his self-righteous shoes. But Jesus shows gentle compassion on this man. Our Lord actually models the story that he's going to say. It is a perfect example of what he lived. So he says, you've heard that you can hate your enemy. Well, clearly you're my enemy. Clearly you're trying to, you're, you're, you're trying to chap, 
or trap me. You've side-skirted the whole, you know, do you love God? And you've gone to this technicality that you are living in in your world. And what does he say in verse 44 of Matthew 5? But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Even though this lawyer was able to kind of be kind of rebuff what Christ was doing, even though he was trying to trap him, even though he was trying to embarrass him, Jesus replies with a tender-hearted, long-suffering kindness, and he shares a story. And the story our Lord tells is one of the most powerful parables that Christ teaches. It would certainly have been enough to shatter the pride of anyone that was a true seeker of truth. This is not a simple lesson in etiquette or a manual on how to help the less fortunate. However, you certainly can glean from this story about those things. This isn't simply a lesson for children about how to share their toys and to be kind to the new kids in class. Certainly, you can glean truth from that. This was a story told to a religious non-believer, a self-righteous man, as an evangelistic effort. For this, for this man. And you know what I find interesting is when you read through the story, do you ever really find out what happens to the man? And Jesus was the greatest soul winner in the world. The greatest evangelist in the world. And yet people often walked away from the truth. And so you and I, you know what we're responsible to do? Let's share the truth. And so in the weeks to come, we're going to begin to look at the priest, we're going to look at the Levite, we're going to look at, of course, the Samaritan, and we're going to dive into their stories, their backgrounds, the understanding. Obviously, we know that it's a figurative, it's a parable, it's a, it's a story with a, uh, a heavenly story, kind of with an earthly meaning there. But as we study those different groups that Jesus is going to bring up, I believe we're going to see what a true heavenly love looks like. And uh, my prayer is that we will grow in that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you.